Foster Open Ring Class, November 25th, 2001. Matthew 7, 1 through 5, and 12 through 20. So if you'll turn with me to Matthew 7, verse 1. Do not judge so that you may not be judged. For with the judgment you make, you will be judged, and the measure you give will be the measure you get. Why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye, but do not notice the log in your own eye? Or how can you say to your neighbor, let me take the speck out of your eye while the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. In everything, do to others as you would have them do to you, for this is the law and the prophets. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road is easy that leads to destruction, and there are many who take it. For the gate is narrow and the road is hard that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorns or figs from thistles? In the same way, every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will know them by their fruits. Well, this is the last of four lessons on the Mountain Sermon as recorded by Matthew. These teachings are the most concentrated and succinct of all the teachings in the Bible about the life that disciples of Christ are called to live. It describes, by way of review, what we've been saying the last three weeks, the features of this life. First, the sermon is about the people that God delights in those who will be divinely happy in the eschaton because of the way they live in finite time. The religion that God approves, be it charity or prayer or fasting. The thing that matters with God is sincerity and privacy. There's no approval for piety aimed at earning the praise of others. Third, the sermon is about the service that God requires undivided allegiance to God and storing up treasures in heaven. Fourth, the faith to which God calls to learn to trust the future to God's hands by learning from birds and lilies, as we talked about last week. And then finally today, the way God expects us to treat others. And I want to make four points from the reading. First, there's a danger in being judgmental. It opens the self to judgment. Now, this command needs to be thought through. He doesn't explain it at all, and therefore we have to interpret it in the light of other events and other scriptures. It is clear that this is not a command forbidding all judgment. In only a few more sentences, the listeners will be told to judge whether a prophet is true or false. In Matthew 23, Jesus is harshly judgmental with the Pharisees. The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So practice whatever they tell you, but not what they do. 
for they preach but do not practice. They bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. And then in sequence in the chapter, he calls them hypocrites, blind men, whitewashed tombs, serpents, broods of vipers. He was harshly judgmental of the scribes and Pharisees. Some kinds of judgment are not only necessary, but mandated. We are to judge and act against those who hurt or seek to destroy God's children in any way. And that is true whether the hurt is expressed by governments or businesses or in personal lives or even in the church, as we will see in the false prophet comment. Can you imagine what Jesus would think if we were not judgmentally against child pornography, for example? There are judgments that are not only necessary, but mandated. So this is not a general demand against judgment. The commandment appears to have two focuses. First, it appears to be a command against a judgmental and censorious attitude, especially when the person who is judgmental and censorious is judging another at the same time that she or he is performing deeds that are worse than the person who is judged. Hence the speck and log comparison. It is a strong commandment against a judgmental and censorious attitude. Almost all the commentators use censorious here, and it means severely critical, fault-finding, carping. It is a person who spends one's life fault-finding, and he is against that. So this commandment is not a demand to be blind and silent against evil, true evil, but rather a plea to be kind and generous in the face of personal moral failure, not ethical maleficence against the children of God. Now, a particular problem is to make judgments as though one were God. In Romans 10:14, Paul writes, Why do you pass judgment on your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of God. Now, Karl Barth commenting on this making judgments about other people, like we were God, says uncertain are all our questions concerning the salvation of others. Feeble are all our attempts to assess another's relationship to God. Judge not, therefore, is the only possibility. All of us know people who make judgments about who is saved and who is not saved. And Bart says, that is unacceptable to play God yourself, judging who is in relationship with God and who is not. Now, Jesus says bluntly that judging others without mercy may preclude mercy for oneself. Don't judge, he says, lest you be judged. So we are to judge ethical maleficence, ethical wrongdoing and evil, 
but we are not to be censorious in our attitude. The censorious person wishes to have full, unabated judgment of other people's sins and full and unabated mercy for their own. That is a deadly combination. And that appears to make the Savior of the world angry, to demand full and unabated justice and punishment for others, full and complete mercy for oneself. Now, I think the statement to you here, then, is to be fully engaged in the way we vote or everything else for ethical maleficence, harmful acts or failure to act for those who are God's children, but non-censorious. I think we've used several times in here a famous statement that the late Andy Eddington made for the sort of thing Jesus is talking about. Andy Eddington grew up very poor in the South, and he and a friend were driving around one day, and they saw another boy and girl in a fancy car. And so Andy said to his friend, let's follow that rich kid and beat him up for being rich and for having, I guess, a beautiful girlfriend. And the car pulled into what was the country store. It was the 7-Eleven of the time. To Andy's horror, when they drove up behind the car, preparatory to punishing him for his malfeasance that he happened to be rich, the girl got out, pulled out a wheelchair, and came out on the other side, and the paralyzed young man got into the wheelchair, and she pushed him into the store. And Andy Eddington said, right then and there, I got off the judgment committee. That's a good statement. Right then and there, I got off the judgment committee. Now, Andy was fierce against evil. But he never made dubious judgments about other humans who were struggling with life in the real world. So that's the first point. It is a dangerous thing to have a judgmental and censorious attitude, and we should guard against that with everything we can do. The second teaching of the lesson is that we are to do to others as we would have them do to us. And what that means is to practice beneficence. In everything do to others as you would have them do to you, for this is the law and the prophets. And what he means by this is to practice beneficence. Now, most dictionaries define beneficence as doing good or being actively kind. And that is the central demand of what has been called the golden rule. And it is a general principle of ethics. Now, I didn't read a commentary that did not mention Hillel's negative statement of the golden rule. Hillel was one of the greatest of rabbis, and around 20 AD, a Gentile, a pagan, asked Rabbi Hillel if he could explain the law, the Torah, to the Gentile, to the pagan, in the time that he could stand on one leg. Hillel reportedly said, in the summary of the law. What is hateful to you, do not do to someone else. That is the whole law, the whole Torah. Everything else is commentary. Study it. The whole law of God is don't do something hateful that you wouldn't want done to yourself. Everything else in the books of Moses, he said, is commentary, study it. Now, Jesus did a positive variant of the rule. Instead of avoiding harm to others, he says, 
practice beneficence with others. Meet their needs as you would want your own need met. Now, it's very interesting that in what is called the Georgetown Mantra, which devolves ethical behavior into four rules, includes both negative statement and positive statement in the general rules of ethics. These have been best developed by Tom Beecham, who has expanded on these four rules extensively. I'm not going to take time to comment except to list them for you and have you see the negative and the positive taken into the general rules of ethics that inform all of us in everyday life. We have a duty to preserve autonomy. This is the principle of respect for persons. The person may do or say what she wishes as long as someone else is not harmed by it. And if autonomy is impaired, then a surrogate must stand for that, let's say if it's a child with Down syndrome or something. Here's the Hillel statement. We have a duty to perform no maleficence. This is the principle of doing no harm. This is usually the first rule of bioethics that people talk about, that what physicians do first is cause no harm, but it's a general rule of ethics. We have a duty to promote justice. This is the principle of treating persons fairly, and it has both distributive and retributive elements. It means that the same misbehavior or crime should receive the same punishment, and that all rights and responsibilities of citizenship should be extended to all. This is the principle of treating persons fairly to promote justice. And the fourth one is that we have a duty to practice beneficence. Here's the positive statement. So we see Hillel's statement is number two. Jesus' statement is number four. Beneficence is the principle of meeting needs in others unbiased and non-contingently. It doesn't matter whether the person's green or yellow or male or female or rich or poor, Arab or American. If a need is there in unbiased fashion, one practices beneficence, one acts kindly. And it's non-contingent. It means that one does this without any intent of receiving reward, even gratitude. One does this even if the person never says thank you. Now, it's wrong never to say thank you, of course, but one does that even if one does not receive thanks. Now, Beecham considered all of the four ethical rules as being equal, but most ethicists consider them as ascending ethical rules in importance. In other words, it takes more of a moral ethical commitment to fulfill rule four than to fulfill rule one. So they are an ascending order of demands. And it's quite interesting that the ascending order of demand culminates with Jesus' statement in the Mountain Sermon, where he says, treat other people like you'd want to be treated if you were in need. It's a positive demand. And that is a core demand of all Christianity, to practice beneficence to act kindly, to do good. Now, third thing he says is that to be a Christian demands decision. Enter through 
the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the road is easy that leads to destruction. And there are many who take it. For the gate is narrow and the road is hard that leads to life. And there are few who find it. Now the picture here is absolutely clear. Two gates, two roads, two crowds, two destinies. And decision has to be made. One gate is narrow. The road leads to life. The crowd is small. One gate is wide. The road leads to destruction, spiritual destruction. And many take it. It is a clear choice. To be a Christian means that one has to make a decision which gate will be taken. We have to choose. When one is called by Christ to discipleship, the old life has to be left behind, forsaken, in order that one may truly live the new life, which means to follow Christ to walk with him, to hear what he says, and to do what he does. That's what the narrow gate involves. The saints used to repetitively say about this, he leads, Christ leads, stay close, keep close to the leader. That's what this life is about, stay close. Now the narrow way is in principle simple. When Jesus sent out the disciples and then the 70, he said three things to them. First, he said, travel light. Don't be burdened down and hindered by the things of the world. Not against the things of the world. Not burdened down by them. Travel light. Secondly, he said, heal the sick. What he meant by that was, take care of the wounded of the world. Whether the wounds are psychological or spiritual or disease. And third, he said, when you're on the road, when you come into a town, you tell them that the kingdom of God is near. In other words, proclaim the gospel. The decision for the narrow gate is in principle simple. To travel light, to heal the sick, that is to practice mercy to the wounded, and to tell them that the kingdom of God is near and can be known and apprehended. That's all. And it follows from the first experience of Christ's call when one understands that one's sins are forgiven and that one's salvation is assured. The decision does not become optional when that is known. And then the fourth thing he says is beware of false prophets. Jesus understood that there would be persons in sheep's clothing who were in fact ravenous wolves to destroy the church and the people of God. And the way to tell, he says, is look at the fruits. 
Look at the fruits of the putative prophet. Because a good tree bears good fruit and a bad tree bears bad fruit. And the evidence is clear if one studies the fruit. Now, what are some of the fruit signs of a wolf ministry or a bad ministry? What are the signs that one looks for? Let me just mention a few. First, a ministry that focuses more on hellfire and judgment than on grace and salvation. That's a bad fruit sign. A ministry that appears to be primarily in the money-raising business. These are what people in the early church called the Christ merchants. They sell Christ for money. And the telltale mark in every one of the Christ merchants is they talk about seed gifts. You give your money and you'll get a reward, you see. You've got to bury that seed in there. It's a bad sign if the primary focus of the ministry is on fundraising. A ministry that ignores real-life mercy signals bad fruit. A ministry that does not follow what Jesus said in Matthew 25 about judgment, that we're to feed the hungry and clothe the naked and visit the sick. A ministry that is devoid of real-life mercy, not talked-about mercy, is a bad fruit ministry. A ministry that knows all the answers is a bad fruit ministry. We're seeing that since September 11th. All the apocalyptic preachers are out in force selling books that earn literally millions and millions of dollars and predicting precisely when the end of the world will come. I saw quotes from several ministers. The end of the world will be here within one year or two years, and that September 11th means all the prophecies are now fulfilled and the world is going to end. Rapture is going to come. Now, they seem to forget that Jesus says, even I don't know the day when it's going to happen, you know, only the Father in heaven. But they are absolutely clear as to what is going to happen in the world. They know all the answers. And as one person who studies the apocalyptic group has said, it looks like they ought to learn from having been wrong so many times. It's a bad fruit. A ministry which is afraid of science and real-world mysteries that wishes to quieten serious questions is a bad fruit ministry. They will not let the parishioners ask questions that are mysteries, but that are serious. And finally, a ministry that ignores Christ and the gospel, that tells a few feel-good stories every Sunday, and never speaks to human sin, the cross, the resurrection, and redemption is a bad faith ministry. A ministry which only tells a few feel-good stories and ignores Christ and the gospel is a bad faith ministry. And one of the awful things about it is that the people who listen to it never understand about the narrow gate and the difference between the narrow gate and the wide gate because they've never heard it. So be alert, Jesus said, 
to ravenous wolves and false prophets and false ministries. Well, I thought about this this morning. We're really not interested in false prophets. I think what we're interested in is true prophets that bear good fruit. And I decided I would end this morning by telling you two true life stories about faithful prophets whose authenticity comes from not only what they did, but what they have said. The first is Ben Patterson, who is the dean of the chapel at Hope College. He wanted to speak to the issue of hearing God's voice. He starts off, Lily Tomlin once said, why is it when we speak to God, we call it prayer, and when God speaks to us, we call it schizophrenia? He was searching for the voice of God. This appears to be a family of incredible faith, but one of their sons had Tourette's syndrome. This is a syndrome in which their uncontrolled tics and behavior and movement disorders, and it's very hard to control them. One of the problems is what's called coprolalia. It means the repetitious use of obscene words without even thinking. Ben Patterson was on a retreat in a desert monastery when, for the first time, his son exhibited coprolalia. His wife was there alone. And the word was the F word. I don't have time to tell you how she handled it. It sounds like it was a brilliant way that she did it because this boy loved Jesus. He told her one time, Mother, I know Jesus doesn't make me do this, and that's not what he would want me to do. She called her husband, who was in the desert monastery, and he described what happened there. He said he lay awake all night long, and he was worried because he had sometimes been harsh with this son because it was difficult to control with this Tourette's syndrome. And he said, what have I done to my son? And the next morning, although he's a Reformed minister, he was in a Catholic monastery. He walked the stations of the cross at every place through his tears, thanking God for the forgiveness of all of his sins. And then the scripture for the day he opened, and it was from John 9. Remember the story. They asked Jesus about a blind man and said, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus said, neither, neither it is that the glory of God may be revealed. And he had thought of this disease as being like a python coiled around his neck and his child's neck. And all of a sudden, when he saw these words, he said, can I prove that that was God speaking to me? No, I can't prove it, but the python went away. And he remembered the words of C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis always said the right thing. C.S. Lewis said, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our consciences, and shouts to us in our pain. Take that away. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our consciences, shouts to us in our pain. It is his megaphone to us. So they came through this first thing, but it didn't end his comments. He was a pastor before he moved to a college, and he said he never forgot an evening service at his church. He said it had been a tough year. I didn't like being a pastor anymore, but couldn't think of anything else I could do. See that authenticity? 
that you get tired sometimes in what you're doing, tired in serving God, tired sometimes in being a pastor, sometimes tired of being a teacher, sometimes being tired of taking care of a stew pot or something. I didn't like being a pastor anymore, but couldn't think of anything else I could do. The choir was performing a beautiful piece. This is hard to explain and may sound a little weird to somebody who has never had the experience, but in the beauty of the music, I got a glimpse of God's transcendent beauty and goodness just for a moment. And it was like a spear of longing and delight had pierced my heart. The ache was exquisite. And my first thought was, Lord, you are enough. I'll do this lousy job forever if you let me walk with you and get just a peek at you once in a while true prophet, authentic. The words are clear. No fakery here at all. The second story that I want to share with you about a true prophet is entitled Surprised by Death. It's a sermon. James Van Tolen was 31 years old when he was discovered having a widely metastatic liposarcoma. He was a minister of the Reformed Church in America. And this is the sermon that he preached after he got back to his pulpit for the first time in seven months after his chemotherapy had been given. I want to read part of it because this speaks to everyone who is ill and everyone who will be ill and who faces death. The scripture was from Romans 5. He starts off, this is a strange day for all of us. Let me start with honesty. He says, we have to be honest about the world and honest about the difficulties of faith within it, and then we still have to have hope in God. So let me start with the honesty. The truth is that for seven months I have been scared, not the cancer, not really, not even of death, but dying is another matter. How long it will take and how it will go, dying scares me. But when I say that, saying that I have been scared, I don't mean that my thoughts have centered on dying. My real fear has centered somewhere else. Strange as it may sound, I have been scared of meeting God. How could this be so? How could I have believed in the God of grace and still have dreaded to meet him? Why did I stand in the pulpit and preach grace to you over and over, and then when I myself needed the grace so much, discover fear where the grace should have been? I think I know the answer now. As the wonderful preacher John Timmer has taught me over the years, the answer is that grace is a scandal. Grace is hard to believe. Well, I said what our Heidelberg Catechism has said when all that I talked about was grace before, that our only comfort in life and death is that we are not our own, but belong to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. That was a favorite statement from the Heidelberg Catechism for Karl Barth. I said all those things, and I meant them, but that was before I faced death myself. So now I have a silly thing to admit. I don't think I ever realized the shocking and radical nature of God's grace 
even as I preached it. And the reason I didn't get it when grace is concerned, I think, is that I assumed I still had about 40 years left. 40 years to unlearn my bad habits, 40 years to let my sins thin down and blow away, 40 years to be good to animals and pick up my neighbor's mail for them when they went on vacation. But that's not how it's going to go. Now I have months, not years. And now I have to meet my creator who is also my judge. I have to meet God not later but sooner. I haven't enough time to undo my wrongs. Not enough time to straighten out what's crooked. Not enough time to clean up my life. And that's what scares me. What drew my attention to Romans 5, he said, is this. It's a little Greek word, which is eti, E-T-I. And it means still or yet. And what Paul says in Romans 5 is this. While we were yet, while we were still sinners, Christ died for our sins. That little yet, that little still. And he said, that makes all the difference between sin and grace. And he ends it this way. So please don't be surprised when the days ahead I don't talk about my cancer very often. I've told a part of my story today because it seemed right to do it on the first day back after seven months. But what we must talk about here is not me. I cannot be our focus because the center of my story our story is that the grace of Jesus Christ carries us beyond every cancer, every divorce, every sin, every trouble that comes to us. The Christian gospel is the story of Jesus, and that's the story I'm called to tell. I'm dying. Maybe we'll take longer instead of shorter. Maybe I'll preach for several months and maybe for a bit more. But I'm dying. I know it and I hate it and I'm still frightened by it. But there is hope, unwavering hope. I have hope not in something I've done, some purity I've maintained, or some sermon I've written. I hope in God, the God who reaches out for an enemy, saves a sinner, dies for the weak. That's the gospel, and I can stake my life on it. I must, and so must you. Sterling silver authenticity. Compare that to what you hear from the false prophets. So at the end of the sermon, Jesus says, look, there's a danger in being judgmental. Don't be censorious. Don't have an attitude of judgment. It'll open you to being judged yourself. Do to others as you would have them do to you, which means to practice beneficence. That means to practice active kindness. To be a Christian, a decision has to be made, narrow gate or wide. But that is the only way to really live. And finally, beware of false prophets. When they speak, and although he didn't say it, there's another subtle warning. Don't be a false prophet.
And that is the burden of every person who teaches the Christian faith, not to be a false prophet. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the greatness of the mountain sermon. We thank you for those who are willing to share their lives and their fears, to know that you speak to them and to us in your written word, in our prayers, in events, in music, that we can hear you, and that when we hear you calling to decision, we are not schizophrenic. We are simply listening for the voice which speaks to us in happy times and pleasures, to the voice which tells us when we are doing wrong to our consciences, and the voice who resonates and reverberates against our fears and despairs when we're in pain. We ask that you would bless us as a church, that you would bless the church universal, that the false prophets would be weeded out, and that the true prophets would arise. Help us to remember that to be a true prophet is simply to be a disciple of Christ and to live in this real world on his behalf. We thank you for the forgiveness of our sins. We thank you for every awareness of the gospel. I pray particularly today for anyone in the room who might be frightened of life or death. Help us to be companions on the way, hopefuls, who carry out what you would have us do. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.